seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, reading verses 6 through 9. It's good probably for me to remind you that we never end the services on the hour, and we will not this morning either. We pick up in Galatians 3, as we mention each service and each time we read the Bible together, believing in the inspiration, in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible, its inerrancy and authority, as we will see underlined in our text this morning. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 6, we'll come back and explain how we get into this. Actually, let's start at Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1, so we get the flow of the text. Paul is continuing his argument. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? This is our text this morning. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This letter, uh, letter to the churches in Galatia, is no... It's, it's not the kind of note your mother would write to you and send you in your lunchbox. It's not a, a note of uh, encouragement and love, but rather, this is Paul's most passionate letter. He writes as if his hair is on fire. He is afraid that the church he loves, the church he labored over, evangelized, discipled, planted, is apostatizing. That it's not going to be a church in any true sense as it was intended to be. Now, if you were to visit one of these churches in Galatia on a Sunday morning, I don't think you'd see much different. I don't think you'd be able to to spot uh, the rottenness that was at the core. It might not be obvious at first. No doubt everyone there would be nice and welcoming and and serious and, and religious, good moral people, no doubt. And yet Paul has been arguing arguing since chapter 1 and verse 6 that they had in fact abandoned the very thing that makes them Christians, the very heart of the gospel of justification by faith alone. The Galatian churches had come under the, the influence of false teachers. And no doubt the false teachers, you know, didn't see themselves as false teachers. No doubt they saw themselves as uh 
you know, higher-minded, more sophisticated teachers, the, the, the pastors and preachers that could lead you into the deeper things, the old ways. If you really want to get right with God, you've got to go deep into the Bible, into the old things. You've got you to put together the pieces uh, of the Old Testament, the ceremonial law. You've got to keep circumcision. You've got to keep uh, the holidays, the Jewish holidays. And you've got to keep the cleanliness laws. Other than that, you'll be outside the covenant. You'll be outside the people of grace. You can't be included. If we want unity in the church, we've got to get all people to follow these Old Testament ceremonial laws. They were saying, as Paul has shown us, that faith plus works equals justification with God. They were saying faith plus works equals justification with God, but Paul has been pushing back, arguing since the very beginning of the book against this very thing. No, he says it's not faith plus works that equals justification, but faith alone equals justification plus works, works that will follow. You are justified, he's saying, by faith alone. Now, now whether you've been a Christian all your life, or you're a skeptic of some sort, or if you're a, you're a tourist in Savannah and you've found yourself in this beautiful building, there's something uh, worth talking about here. This is the very core of the Christian religion. It's what makes Christianity unique. It's the, the principle of grace. Amazing grace, perhaps you've heard sung about. Every other religion, every other way of living, you end up justifying yourself based upon your merit or your works. By being good, doing the rituals, being devout, disciplined, and devoted. But in Christianity, the fundamental understanding is that we are not made right with God, justified by works, but by grace through faith. Now, last time we were together on a Sunday morning, we started in chapter 2, verse 17. This is where Paul is anticipating the pushback from the false teachers, uh, and that this doctrine that Paul's preaching, justification by faith alone, makes good works non-meritorious. He's saying, you know, they're saying, well, if, if your debt's been paid, if all the good works you ever had to do to be righteous is, has already been paid, and if the student loans are taken care of, who's going to do the good works? Who's going to pay back God with a righteous life? They're saying, no one. And you'll lead Christ to be an antinomian. You'll make Christ a, a partner with sin. And Paul goes on to explain, after 2.17 and following, as we get to our chapter this morning, that what happens when we're justified is not only a legal reality, but also an organic reality. We are not only transferred from damned, guilty, to righteous, but we are, in fact, united to Christ. His Spirit living in us. We're giving a new heart, new desires, a new way of living, new life. And then just before our passage this morning, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, so last Sunday evening, a couple of Sundays ago, uh, these are rapid-fire rhetorical questions that are really arguments in disguise. Each question a missile meant to destroy the arguments of his enemies, leading up to the, his big argument. Uh, this is, the, this is the, uh, the, the pinnacle, and it comes in chapter 3, verse 6, and really the argument continues through chapter 3, verse 14. He builds up to this argument, the one we're at today, because this is where the false teachers think they have home field advantage and high ground. That is on the Old Testament Scriptures. And Paul's about to take his argument to them. Our, our outline, if you're keeping notes this morning, 
It will be as follows. We will examine the, the what of Paul's argument, what the argument is, the so what or the application, the implication of his argument, and thirdly, the how of Paul's argument, the what, the so, white, so what, and the how he gets there. And I hope that we too will be reconvinced, our convictions deepened about the centrality of justification by faith alone. So let's first look at the what. And look back at verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Or Paul's been arguing based upon their experience just before that. When you become a Christian, it's not as if when I came pastoring you and I came evangelizing you, Paul says to the Galatians, I came with a list of do's and don'ts. If you want to be right with God, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do that. So no, what he's been saying is that he came to show Christ publicly portrayed as crucified. He didn't tell them what they had to do. He told them what Christ had done. Following God can't start or even continue by works of the law, something that you work up in yourself. He says the Holy Spirit. He said, did it come to you because you did some kind of ritual rain dance? You worked yourself up into a froth, into some ecstatic state, and then the Holy Spirit finally came? No. The Holy Spirit came when you heard and believed. That is, you were justified by faith alone because this is the way God works and it's the way He has always worked and will work. Paul is arguing that his, his doctrine, his teaching is nothing novel. It's nothing new. It's not something he invented on his own and has come to add to uh, the corpus of uh, the true religion. But rather, he's arguing this is how God has always worked. Chapter 3 and verse 6, where we're at this morning. He says, example 1a. Just as Abraham, Abraham the father of our religion, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, if you're a good Bible student, you know that Paul here is quoting from Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. This is that famous story. Just after the Lord has shown up to encourage Abraham, he takes him outside on a clear evening and tells him to look at the stars and count them if he can. And the Lord says to this 90-plus-year-old man, so shall your offspring be, so shall your Zerah, your seed, be. And it is this, this promise of seed that Abraham, quote, chapter 15, verse 6, chapter 3, or 15, verse 6, and chapter 3, verse 6 in Galatians says, Abraham believed. That is, he had faith. That is, it doesn't say he, he had works, he, he worked up to, no, he, he believed, and it was counted or credited, or I love the King James Version, it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. Uh, the Greek term is legizomai. It's a, it's a term of accounting. It's kind of accounting error that, you know, if you started your new job and you were working real hard and making good money, but when you had started the job, you had entered in, um, you know, perhaps my checking account number, bank account number, instead of your own, your hard work and the, the things you've accumulated would, would be credited unto me. And I would be getting rich off of your hard-earned living, of your righteousness uh, maintaining. This is, in fact, uh, the, way, the way God is dealing with Abraham. He was not actually righteous, Abraham. He did not conform unto the law of God perfectly. He, had, he hadn't earned the title of righteous because he had worked up to it. 
Uh, if you know the story of Abraham, he's really all over the map, both morally and ceremonially. Uh, morally, in any age to, uh, you know, he's, he's fallen Lord, he's trying to believe the promises of God, uh, but he ends up, even in chapter 12, as soon as he begins, trading his wife into Pharaoh's harem to save his own skin. That's immoral. That's not keeping the law of God. And you think if it happened only once, but it doesn't. Chapter 18, Abraham, he's trusting the Lord, bringing promises of offspring about, but he ends up taking his wife's Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, to raise up offspring through a surrogate. Abraham, not exactly following the way of righteousness as we come to Genesis 15 in the story. Now, um, of course, he's not keeping the law of God in a ceremonial way either, of course, because most of the ceremonial law hadn't been written for Abraham. And even the part that Abraham receives, the sign of circumcision, this isn't given to him until chapter 15. But Moses, or Abraham is counted righteous in chapter 15. That is, the Judaizers might have had, a, the false teachers might have had an argument. If Abraham had uh, been circumcised and then counted righteous. But that's distinctly not the order of things. Rather, it's reversed. It says, Abraham believed God and it was counted, credited to him as righteousness. And Paul's point being, this is the way God works. It's the way he's always worked from cover to cover in the Bible. The same God and the same way of salvation. Abraham believed God's promise about the Zerah, the seed, the offspring, and was justified. And the point implicit here is that we too believe God's promise about the offspring, Zerah, the seed. The Genesis 3.15, seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. That seed word, that offspring, Zerah word, which is repeated and expanded the promises in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham, and then expanded again in chapter 14, and then expanded again in 15, and in 17, and expanded again to Moses, and expanded again to Israel, and expanded again to David, until Jesus himself is clearly the seed of the woman, born of a virgin, who is the very substance of the promise, even which Abraham believes and is counted righteous. Abraham could not see the fulfillment when he believed. He and his wife were old and barren. And we might not either see the fulfillment, the consummation of Christ coming in fullness to redeem both the living and the dead. And yet we believe by faith. We believe in what we cannot see. We believe the promise God has given us. He will come again and set all things right. This, we might say, is the what of Paul's argument. Same God, same way, faith alone but the so what, the implications, our second point we can't miss either. Both verse 7 and verse 9, I would argue, basically say the same thing. Look at them with me. Look at verse 7. Paul says, you know, basically, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And he says again, verse 9, so then who, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. If, if what? That's the question. What makes you a child of Abraham? And the Judaizers would have had a different way of seeing things. They would have had a different argument. They would have been either been able to 
to trace their lineage, their gene- genealogy. You know, they get 23 and me back, and they see, you know, a perfect line straight back to Abraham genetically. Or they would have seen a, a clear keeping of the ceremonial law, the covenantal boundaries of circumcision, to be the instrumental means by which they are made sons of Abraham. You become a son of Abraham when you get the sign of Abraham, circumcision. And we don't seem to talk like this so much anymore. Um, we used to. We used to have sons of liberty and daughters of the American Revolution. Um, your, your sonship or your daughtership uh, being a very central to who you are, a part of your, your pride and your identity. And to be found in the lineage of your you know, means something. Tolkien captures this so well. Aragorn is son of Arathorn son of Isildur's heir, Elendil's heir, means something to be born to somebody. There's something deep and mystical in that. Indeed, indeed, whole civilizations give themselves over to ancestor worship. But Paul's point is that their pride, the pride of the Judaizers, is misplaced. It's not in Abraham's blood that makes you sons. It's not biological or genealogical. It's spiritual. True sons of Abraham are sons by faith. True Israel is believing Israel. True Jews are Jews by faith alone. And the so what of that is enormous. For one, this book isn't about a people with Jewish ancestry. It's about people who believe. It doesn't matter whether you're a, a redneck from the middle of nowhere or an Eskimo or an aristocrat in Savannah, by believing you are brought into the deepest storyline in the history of man, the history of God and man. Abraham's story becomes your story. His fatherhood becomes your story. You are brought into the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, Joshua, David, and Jesus. This story is about you and for you. See, justification by faith alone from cover to cover means this book is your story if you believe. This book and the letters in it are written to you. Now, no doubt ancient Jews would have been just as offended by this notion as modern Jews. No doubt this plays a role in what keeps getting Paul almost killed as he goes from synagogue to synagogue throughout the ancient world as they seek to stone him and flog him and every other thing. But if we're reading our Bibles, paying attention, he isn't saying anything Jesus hadn't already said. In one of my favorite Bible passages, John chapter 8, Jesus is in the midst of his, uh, one of his most heated exchanges with the Pharisees. He's preaching the gospel as he does. You can turn to John 8 if you like, or just listen to the dialogue. John 8, starting in verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But they answered him, we are offspring, seed, Zerah, of Abraham, sons of Abraham, and, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, you will become free. So you hear the the confrontation as it begins. Uh, You're going to be set free. You can see the pride Jesus is going after here. Down in verse 37, Jesus says, I know you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. 
I speak of what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have heard from your Father. Verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Verse 44, Jesus goes for the jugular. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. I'm sure they're liking to hear this. Verse 52, the Jews said to him, Now we know you have a demon. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Which sets up Jesus' famous lines. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself from them and went out of the temple. So what Paul argues here is nothing less than what Jesus had argued in John 8. True sons of Abraham, see what Abraham saw and believe. What did Abraham see? Jesus. The fulfillment of of the promise of the Zerah, the seed. Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, Jesus says. That is, Abraham believed the promise and it was counted to him as righteousness. And the so what is that those who are true sons of Abraham see what Abraham saw, believe what Abraham believed, and receive what Abraham received. Justification by faith alone. So I hope we see clearly the the what of Paul's argument and the so what, but we we can't go through this passage without looking at verse 8, the how Paul makes it. You know, um, in our own day, um, the way the world reads the Bible and really has uh, done so for the last 200 years in our our modern academic and scholarly uh, Bible teachers come to the Bible with really the exact opposite presuppositions, I would argue, that Paul comes to the text with. Look at, look at verse 8. Paul says, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Our modern academics presuppose in an enlightenment way that the Bible is just a human book, uh, an artifact of history that can be studied like any other anthropological, sociological, psychological artifact, and ought to be studied as so. But Paul, do, do you see what he does? How he treats the Bible? We ought to notice first the way he interestingly personifies the Scripture. Uh, in the ESV, they capitalize Scripture with a capital S. And then Paul says Scripture is foreseeing, preaching, and saying, that it's, that it's doing things. And of course, this isn't, this isn't unique to the way the New Testament writers speak of the Word of God or the Scriptures. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 does the very same thing. It says, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight. 
but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Both the writer of the Hebrews and Paul, using the Scripture in the same ways, is so closely identifying uh, what God is doing and what the Scripture is doing that you're, you're wondering where the boundary is. It sounds like in some ways, like the, and this is the role of the Holy Spirit, you know, convicting and slicing and dicing our souls open. Um, uh, what is the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the Word of God? I'm glad you asked the question because Paul answers that question directly in 2 Timothy 3.16, where he explains all Scripture is God-breathed and useful. God-breathed, theopneustos, God-spirated, God-inspirited. That's where we get our word inspiration from. That is the relationship between God Himself and the Scriptures that God inspires. It is His Word. It is closely connected to Him, but as if the, the, the authors of the Bible are the ones that breathed through. Almost as a prism to go through. It's still God's Word. It is not God per se, but it is closely identified with Him as if you can speak here, as Paul does in verse 8. So that although the Bible is written in something, by something like 40 authors in three languages over 1,500 years, Paul assumes a basic continuity, a single author behind all of the Scriptures. And this changes everything the way you begin to read the Bible. In other words, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul uh, is showing us proper hermeneutics, how we ought to read the Bible, assuming one divine author in the whole of the Bible. This is what enables Paul to speak without anachronism. What he's doing here, saying that the, uh, the, the Scriptures preach the gospel to Abraham, only makes any kind of sense if you assume it's the same God that Paul is speaking about that spoke to Abraham and has recorded it for us in the book, in the, book, in the, in the words and pages here. Paul assumes an authoritative, God-inspired text. And, and further, you should notice, uh, uh, well, just how inspired is it? Well, look at verse 8 again. How, does, how do the Scriptures preach? Well, he quotes Genesis chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Now, the, the Greek word there is ethne, the same word for Gentiles. So how, and you shall all the Gentiles be blessed. Well, that's really a New Testament concept that Paul can't be putting back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. That, that's anachronism. That's forcing onto the text something that's not there. Unless Paul knows that from the beginning, in the mind of God, in the Spirit, the true author of all the Scriptures, that was in his mind as he spoke to Abraham, giving him the promises in all the nations, all the ethnic will be blessed in you. Paul, you see, presumes a divinely inspired Scripture inspired right down to the words. You see, his, his whole argument hinges on the singular word nations. It's not an accident that that word is chosen. I want to say, how inspired is the Bible? You know, inspired, you know, generally speaking, in the general thoughts, maybe the, the whole books or paragraphs, the big ideas, or is it inspired down to the very words? That's what we mean when we say we believe in verbal inspiration, down to the very verbs and nouns of the Bible, spoken by God, down to the words. We see here also that when Paul speaks of the Scriptures, he's not speaking uh, of only 
one part or another, the Torah or the Ketuvim or the, another part of the Scriptures, the Nevaim. No, he, he's speaking of the whole of the thing. We believe in verbal plenary inspiration. That theological word plenary meaning the whole of the Bible inspired by God. And further, Paul assumes, of course, it's authoritative. Here is a final word. This is Paul's big argument. This is his clinching argument. Once they see from the Old Testament Scriptures the intention of God from the beginning, the justification by faith alone is from cover to cover, this will drive the point home. Paul here assumes verbal plenary inspiration. And from this we could also deduce this other major no-no of modern scholarship. It's also inerrancy. If the Scripture teaches, and the Scripture is identify with the same words as God, inspired by God, can God create something that errs? Can He have erred in His communication to us? We would say, no, of course not. The Bible is inerrant in all that it says. Paul here assumes the verbal plenary inspiration and errancy and the authority of the Bible of course, if the controversy in the church in the last century isn't raging about justification by faith alone, it's, a, it's, it's a raging about this very doctrine that perhaps upholds that doctrine, the doctrine of Scripture. And over the last century, it seems like every institution, every church, every seminary, and every denomination that begins to lose its way, the, the cracks in the foundation come here at what you say about the Word of God. The liberals in J. Gresham Machen's day are the same as ours. They want to claim a Christ, but they will not listen to the Christ and what he says about the Scriptures. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but not one iota of my word. Jesus, in fact, builds one of his arguments against the Pharisees, not on a single word, but on a single tense of a word. Matthew 22 Jesus arguing against the Sadducees and who are sad, you see, because they don't believe in a resurrection. They think they've caught Jesus in a trap. You know, but what about the woman, the woman who's had seven husbands, they're all brothers, each one of them died. Okay, when it gets to heaven, you know, whose whose wife is she gonna be? And Jesus has no mercy in his response. He says, You are wrong, Matthew twenty two, verse twenty nine, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, you have not read what was said to you by God. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. The amnes of the living God, the present being verb, argues that He's not saying, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but I am, as in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still living in the resurrection. His argument is based upon the inerrancy, not only of the word, but of the tense of the word. Ancient Judaizers who might claim Christ, or modern liberals who ought to read Christ, who, uh, modern liberals the same, both ought not read Christ's book without Christ's presuppositions in reading it. No one has a higher view of the Scriptures than Jesus does himself. This is the, the underlining assumption as Paul as we come to verse 8, and really verses 6 through 8, and all of the New Testament really. 
Paul makes this clinching argument, justification by faith alone, because this is how God worked with Abraham, and it's how God works with you. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let's pray the Lord would help us to believe it. Our Father in heaven, in the face of the prevailing winds against us in our own age, help us to believe Help us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, reading the Scriptures, hearing Christ's voice with Christ's own assumptions about His Word, that it is inspired, inerrant, and authoritative on our lives. We pray in Jesus' name.